This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 80. Today we speak with Derek Thomas about the regulative principle of worship. Christ the Center is listener-supported. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org support. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and today we're going to play for you a recorded interview. Nick Batzig was recently at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America and sat down with Derek Thomas and Josh Walker to discuss the regulative principle of worship. So stay tuned to this pre-recorded interview. This is Nick Batzig. I am at the General Assembly for the PCA here in Orlando, Florida, and I'm sitting down with Dr. Derek Thomas, who is Johnny Richards, Professor of Systematic and Practical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and also the Minister of Teaching at First Presbyterian Church, Jackson. How are you doing, Dr. Thomas? I am ecstatic because the General Assembly is over for another year, and... It was a good one. It makes me makes me glad and proud to be a member of the PCA. Uh, it did have the feel, uh, once again, of being more like a convention, apart from the last couple of hours, um, which was more like constitutional Presbyterianism. Uh, but uh, still, uh, it's it's been good. Yes, yes it has. And we are also joined by Josh Walker. Josh is a, a student at RTS Jackson and uh, is Dr. Thomas's teaching assistant. How are you doing, Josh? Doing good. Thanks for having me on again. Good. And we're glad to be here to talk about uh, the, what is known as the regulative principle of worship. Most of our listeners are, are going to be committed. You will be committed to that, I'm sure, in some degree, some fashion, uh, profess to be. And, and we're, we're hoping to talk about this to clarify some of the details, some of the nuances, and to talk about the importance of worshiping God the way he desires to be worshiped. Um, so, Dr. Thomas, to start off, could you tell our listeners just basically what the idea of the regulative principle of worship is, where it comes from, what, the history of it in, it, in brief? Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, we need to clarify some terms and, and phraseology. Uh, I, I think a, um, a more pertinent question to begin with is what is the regulative principle, and then ask what is the regulative principle as applied to worship. Mm. Now, the regulative principle occurs in our Westminster Standards uh, in the very first chapter of the Westminster Confession, which, as you know, is on the doctrine of Scripture. So the the regulative principle says that there are certain things uh, that we do that must be governed by uh, express uh, authorization of Scripture. Uh, that we are not at liberty to introduce uh, from the silence of Scripture or the adiophora um, in certain areas of life. And, and the two areas that the first chapter of the Confession mentions are worship, as you've already said, plus church government. Mm. So, so the, the regulative principle is not just some weird Puritan principle about worship that, that makes us fuddy daddies. It's actually a corollary of our doctrine of scripture. Hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's an implication of sola scriptura. 
that in government and in worship, and they're just two examples. Mm. Uh, we, 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 are, we are bound by the express commandment of Scripture. Now, what does that mean as applied to the doctrine of worship? Uh, well, again, our standards refer to the implication of the relative principle, not just in chapter 1 as um, uh, a propodeutic principle, uh, but also in chapters 20 uh, and 21, uh, Chapter 21, of course, specifically on the doctrine of scripture, on, 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 I mean, on the doctrine of worship. So nothing can be done in worship unless there is express biblical warrant for it. Hmm. And that puts, uh, that puts the matter in a, in a different form, say, from Lutheranism, uh, which says that so long as scripture doesn't forbid it expressly, we are at liberty to implement it uh, in uh, worship. So, for example, there is no express forbidding in scripture of the use of art um, in worship paintings. Now, one may argue that there is express prohibition against um, uh, pictures of Christ uh, as uh, in violation uh, of the first table of the law and, and, and of images, so one could argue that, for example. But there's no, there's no express commandment in Scripture uh, forbidding the use of paintings in worship. But the regulative principle says, unless there is a command saying, you must worship using these, uh, namely paintings uh, in your worship, um, the regulative principle says you're not at liberty to do that. Right, so no pool parties in worship. Uh, no, no pool parties. Okay. Um, well, let's let's be clear. Uh, you know, we're talking about worship, and 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 again, we do need to make the distinction between uh, what I would call formal uh, Sunday gathered corporate or corporate worship, which begins with a call to worship and ends with a benediction, uh, where there are certain things that happen that cannot happen at any other time, uh, like baptism or the Lord's Supper. Uh, or um, the, 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 the formal reading and proclamation of scripture. Hmm. Um, but all of life is to be worshipful. Uh, we, we live the totality of our lives to the glory of God. And so Romans 12, uh, 1, uh, for example, mm -hmm. uh, would corroborate um, that all of life is meant to be worship. Right. Um, and, and we do everything in life worshipfully. But the regulative principle says, and, and the regulative principle, of course, applies to all of life as much as it does to worship. It just applies differently. Right, in categorically. Right. We have to be regulated uh, by Scripture in all of life just as much as we have to be regulated by Scripture in public worship. Um, how would you respond to those that would charge that the regular principle is a Puritan invention and something that only the Puritans um, came up with? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, Jim Packer, for example, in those famous uh, essays, the often cited uh, Puritan essays that he gave uh, at what was once called the Puritan Conference, and then after the division between uh, Jim Packer and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, it became the Westminster Fellowship, uh, or the Westminster Conference. And... Uh, in one of those papers, um, Jim Packer makes the uh, assertion that the regulative principle is uh, a Puritan invention. 
And, you know, I love Jim Packer. I've uh, read, I think, almost everything he's ever written. And, and if a book come out, came out tomorrow written by Jim Packer, I'd be in the front of the line wanting to buy it. But I just think he's wrong uh, on that point. And, and it would be fairly easy uh, to go, for example, to Calvin's Ecclesiastical Ordinances right, right. Uh, in 1545 uh, after his return from Strasbourg, uh, in which there are express statements um, that look like and read like and smell like and feel like the regulative principle. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't call it the regulative principle, and the term may belong to the 17th century, but the principle involved in the regulative principle um, is uh, a, as much a reformational idea as it is a Puritan or, or a Westminster Confession uh, or a Westminster Standards um, idea. Yes. Now, uh, it's not quite as easy as just saying um, we only worship God how he tells us he wishes to be worshipped in Scripture because then, as this gets fleshed out, we have uh, the threefold division, the tripartite, forms, elements, circumstances, and then determining what the Scripture, um, what the scripture necessitates, the forms, uh, the, the elements, and then uh, the, the manner in which they are um, observed in worship. Um, and then the circumstances, things that are essentially indifferent, useful, helpful, necessary in one sense, and yet, um, uh, and this is where it, it sometimes gets tricky. I'm, I don't know where that division came in, in in church history. Do you, have you come across maybe where that that was flushed out? Was that with the Westminster Divines? And could you define the, those three terms for us as well? Uh, well, Nick is a, a good good attempt there to, to define them very well. Uh, elements, of course, are, are the specific uh, items. Some of them are necessary. Some of them are occasional uh, for public worship. Uh, you, one can have a public worship service without a baptism, so that would be a, mm-hmm. that would be an occasional element, for mm-hmm. example. Um, and even those who argue for frequency of the Lord's uh, Supper don't argue for the Lord's Supper in every single occasion at which we gather for public worship. So again, that would be an occasional element. But some are necessary elements, and the reading of scripture and prayer and uh, preaching of scripture and the singing uh, of, of scripture is, all of those are seen to be necessary um, elements. The Westminster Divines added some other elements, um, public thanksgivings, oaths, yeah. uh, and, uh, and vows and so on. Uh, are occasional elements, so um, one would argue because oaths um, and vows, uh, for example, well, vows are made, for example, in a, in a marriage service, um, that that therefore too becomes um, an occasion where a regulative principle uh, is operative. Uh, forms, uh, forms are forms of elements. So if the element is prayer, what is the form of that prayer? Well, it can be a long prayer or a short prayer. It can be the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it can be a written prayer. It can be an extempore prayer. Um, so there are, there are, there are different, different uh, forms of that element. And with this then, with uh, body posture, head bowed, kneeling, standing, would those things be considered forms? The, the way in which we pray, the manner in which even our physical demeanor is before God, would that be considered a form? Sure, sure. Uh, and because scripture doesn't um, specifically mandate 
um, that every time you pray in a public worship service, you should sit or kneel or stand. Uh, now, now, one could argue that it says more about one than the other, and you could make a very easy argument that the scripture says more about about um, not kneeling in the Anglican sense. In fact, I don't think the Bible knows anything about kneeling in the Anglican sense, uh, falling down and, or, or kneeling. Uh, I think in the Bible is more like what we we associate with Islam. You mm. get down and you yeah. fall flat on your, on your face. Um, now, um, Jesus fell on his face in the garden. Right. Paul says, "I bow my knees to the right. God and Father." Um, you know, those are those are those are forms, and uh, our free church brethren, for example, in Scotland, often stand to pray uh, and sit to sing. Uh, now, musicians would argue that it's better to stand to sing because of the position of the lungs and so on, and etc. But uh, so those would be forms. Circumstances are, are matters of. Uh, you know, relative indifference as far as conscience is concerned. Um, we are mandated to have public worship on the Lord's Day, but we're not mandated to have it at 11 o'clock or 6 o'clock. Uh, and um, if, if, for example, you were a believer in Israel, the Lord's Day is a working day, so you would have to have public worship before people start work, which is often what they do. Uh, or, or late in the evening uh, of, of the Lord's Day, uh, or on the Shabbat, but that introduces another, another, another issue. Um, but I've forgotten your question. You asked me to define um, elements, forms, and uh, circumstances. You asked me when did those originate? They, they certainly had originated by the time of George Gillespie. Uh, that much I'm aware of, um, and that being late 1630s, early 1640s. Mm -hmm. And my my hunch would be, without without um, doing some quick research here, um, that it, those actual terms are terms um, that 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 come into use in uh, the early decades of the 17th century. Yes, and, and maybe even from Knox and the, the Scottish Perhaps Presbyterians. it goes back um, to that period in the late 16th century in Scotland, too. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing on that. Now, just in the context of um, forms, and I'm, I'm sort of taking us broader now down a rabbit trail a bit, but when you come to the Lord's Supper that would be an element again you said occasional the options there not to not to observe the supper every week um, and if if and then with regard to well sorry Nick let me I am a weekly that. supper guy I right, assume right. actually what I said was um, there's no obligation to observe the Lord's Supper at every occasion of worship <coughs> that means, excuse me. That means, um, if you have two services on the Lord's Day, you're not obligated to have the Lord's Supper at, at, at both of them. Now, whether whether or not you uh, are a weekly Lord's Supper guy, you know, my my view on that is most folk who advocate that, um, you know, you 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 may you may find some textual reference to that in, say, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, that they continued steadfastly in uh, the breaking of bread and prayers. 
um, Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, Breaking of Bread and Prayers. Uh, and, and if the breaking of bread there is a reference to the supper and not a reference to the agape meal, that's debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that might imply that they that they did celebrate the supper every week. The the evidence is slender. Uh, one cites Calvin, of course, Calvin's aspiration. Uh, two things about that: one is that Calvin never did celebrate the Lord's supper every week, um, and that's because it wasn't his decision to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but secondly, for every celebration of the Lord's Supper, from Calvin priest Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, twice on Sunday, and then the following Wednesday. Unbelievable. Uh, so there were ten sermons for one Lord's Supper. So I can live with that. Yes, uh, I can too. If you want weekly, if you want weekly communion, give me ten yes. sermons yes. in two weeks, yes. and I can live with that. If, if I thought people would actually come. To listen to me preach throughout the week, I would preach throughout the week. I don't think they're going to come. Um, but my, my question on the, the, the Lord's Supper, let's say you would observe it weekly, whatever, whatever your conviction about that biblically would be, whether you use a common chalice, and this is where I want to move, this would be more of a, a form question, would it not? Uh, the, the way in which that's administered, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about I, I like the idea of a common chalice. I don't think anybody's going to actually drink out of the same cup in our day. Maybe I'm wrong. Would that be more of a form that, that it, it, it matters, but it's not necessarily you have to do it just like this? I don't know if that was clear. Well, I, I think I know what you're getting at. Um, and it is a, it's not an easy question to answer. I, I think that when you read um, First Corinthians... Um, the supposition, I think, that lies behind the language, uh, both in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, uh, of the one cup and the one bread. We all participate in the one cup and, and Jesus one saying, bread. all of you drink from it, from this one right. cup, drink from it, all of you. It's and, you. and if you make the argument, and I know, and I know some uh, don't, um, and uh, Bob Lethem, for example, doesn't, but... But, but it is common to make the assertion that the Lord's Supper uh, is, a, is a New Testament, New Covenant segue from Passover, where again there would have been one common cup um, in, the, in the Seder uh, meal. Um, I, I, think, I think that the symbolism of bread and wine, but also of one loaf and one cup, is actually meant to be symbolic Mm -hmm. Um, and that if you instead have not just um, individual cups but plastic throwaway cups Mm -hmm. um, that nobody else touches Mm -hmm. um, and uh, individual pieces of whatever they are um, unleavened wafers, crackers saltine biscuits, I mean, whatever, whatever those things are. Um, other than Oyster a loaf, crackers. Right, other than a loaf of bread from which you sort of pull a piece of bread. I mean, the symbolism is lost because the symbolism as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is pure individualism. We have a single cup and we, and, and we have a, a, a piece of bread that nobody else has touched and we participate in my corner and we say our little private prayers and it becomes... It becomes um, something that, that is almost entirely individual. And we try to break that sometimes by saying, oh, let's all hold the bread, 
and wait then for each get other together and attempt to get back into some symbolic unity. Um, I, I think here in the states, in, you know, um, germophobia or whatever the technical right. term right. is, has become so so strong. Um, you know that the idea of uh, taking the Lord's Supper from a single cup is is just abhorrent. Now, shall I? Tell, yeah, please, please tell my, your story. My favorite yes. story. Yes. Um, I ministered for 17 years in uh, a church across the sea, and um, a dear, dear uh, lady, uh, she, she and her sister, um, they were in their late 70s when I think when I first got to know them, and they were in their 80s and maybe early 90s when I, when I uh, ministered there. And uh, Miss, uh, let, let me call her, I don't want to identify the, the lady, but Miss, uh, Miss X, let me call her, uh, just had a terrible, terrible um, chest complaint. You know, I don't know what it was, but whatever it was sort of gurgled in her chest and, and, and eventually emerged in something that she would spit into her little handkerchief and she'd put the handkerchief in her purse and... And sort of like went, a hairball? Something like that, but it, wasn't, it didn't quite make the noise that my cat makes, but it was, it was, um, it was, it was wild. Uh, and this happened you know, every, every week, uh, and during the Lord's Supper, we had a single cup, and she was the first one. She sat in the front row, and she was the first one to take it. And uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd heard all of this stuff, and, and you know, it took... Uh, and we didn't, we didn't have wine. It was, uh, it was just grape juice. Um, uh, and, and no amount of wine would have, uh, would have um, destroyed whatever it was that was left on that cup. Now, uh, I was the last one. It went all the way around the sanctuary, and then the elders, and then one of the elders would serve the cup to me. And, uh, you know, you, you can get all paranoid about it. You know, it's only our age that has become paranoid about it. Uh, you could say, well, you introduce some sort of... Uh, I don't know, some sort of cloth to wipe it. That only, that only exacerbates the problem. I, I think so, too. I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, so maybe one of our listeners will email me. I'm sure they will and correct me. Um, but I've heard if you use a silver cup with real wine that it kills some of the germs. I don't know. That could be an old you know, wives' tale. I don't know. Sounds like a wives' tale. Well, yeah, thank you, Josh. I, 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 doubt, that, <laughs> I doubt that the science... Uh, would would support all of that, but but anyway, you know that's where we are. Yes, uh, I don't see the clock turning back on it. Yes, um, and I really don't know. I mean, I I regret enormously the loss of the symbolism of the one cup. I think, yeah, um, I am not a, um, uh, an intincture. Um, could you, yeah, could you devotee. break that down for any of our seminarians, well, especially because um, that's becoming more popular even in our own circles? Right. It's a, it's you know, it has sort of Catholic precedence. Uh, obviously, in medieval Catholicism, there was a period when um, the mass was only in one kind, so it was only the wafer that was given uh, to the worshipper, uh, and he never touched that that wafer because it had been. You know, he defined it. the body of Jesus, and if it fell on the floor, and the mouse mice ate it. Uh, you'd have the body of Jesus in the rafters of the church, and that was the problem. <laughs> yeah. So the but priest had to actually insert the wafer into the person's or on top of his tongue, uh, and so on. 
then when when uh, the church decided uh, that communion should take place in both kinds, uh, you still have the problem, even perhaps even greater problem, of handing a cup to somebody who's you know got the shakes and and it's going to spill on the floor and you've got the blood of Jesus now on the floor and that's a problem. So the priest just dipped the wafer into the into the wine and placed it in the mouth. Well, I you know again I think that the the language um, of First Corinthians eleven uh, that Paul is is passing on, I, I, I pass on to you that which I also received, you know, using the Greek paradidomai, uh, which I think has huge significance for passing on of a, a, a body of truth with, with apostolic authority, um, and, and what is, the, what is the, the beginnings of a Christian tradition, seems to me that the, the, the bread and the wine are, are to be, are to be Separate events, mm-hmm. um, and historically that has been the case. So I'm I'm just not a fan of uh, in tincture, of dipping the bread. Uh, I, you know, in our circles, it's not a priest that does it. You know, we do it ourselves. If if that's the way the church does it, you take a piece of bread and just dip it in a single cup. So then you've got the sim- symbolism of the one cup. I I I am open to what we did here at the general assembly. Um, I mean some. You know, some who don't like anything new were a little critical that we had to stand up and go to a table. Um, Scottish Presbyterians have always done that. We do it at Independent Presbyterian Church, I think, once once a quarter, perhaps. I'm not sure. They bring the table out down the right. center of the building, and those in the congregation who can come there right. come to that, and it gives that sense of... Yeah. And I like that. I mean, there is yeah. a sense of table fellowship, which is what it's representing. Uh, you know, the debate took place at the Westminster Assembly itself whether uh, communion should be um, sitting at a table, standing at a table, in the pews, uh, whether they you know... Uh, now the divines didn't come to any conclusion on it, um, uh, and it was a classic case in the directory of public worship. Uh, it's a classic case of um, of compromise. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't feel that anything of principle was being violated either way. Um, so I, I think if coming to a table reintroduces the sense of unity, and it may, uh, you know, I'm I'm not averse. To that, I do think that what what I normally experience tends to be very individual. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's a, it's a, it, I'm I'm shutting off everyone around me, and I'm having this little private moment with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that's what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. Right, I think that's good. Let me take us to the Word, since we do want to emphasize that the Word is central. The Word ought to be in all of our service, preached, read taught, expounded, applied. It needs to be, it needs to permeate. We understand the Lord's Supper from the Word, as you've already demonstrated. Um, I suppose one struggle I've had with discussions on the regulative principle of worship and its um, its uh, consistent application of it is that men sometimes go back to the synagogue worship of the Jews just before the time of Jesus and the Apostles, during the time, maybe just after, during the period of the Acts, and argue that uh, there's evidence that, that this is how they 
did things with regard to the ministry of the word, and we are then emulating them. What are your thoughts on that? And I know I haven't given you specific examples, but I think it's been pretty common in our circles. Dr. Piper, in our Reform Worship course, argued pretty heavily for looking at synagogue worship as a model of Reformed worship, in, in the sense not of the, the content necessarily, but the actual elements. And Well, it would be difficult uh, not to draw the conclusion that... Uh, the initial practice of worship in the New Testament uh, grew out of synagogue worship. That, that would be that would be enormously difficult not to make that uh, that draw that conclusion. Um, there is no doubt, of course, that Jesus worshipped in the synagogue. The argument is sometimes put forth against the regulative principle that since the synagogue does not have express um, express warrant uh, in the Bible um, that worshipping in the synagogue is in itself therefore a violation of the regulative principle and therefore Jesus broke the regulative principle well I think my answer to that is um, the principle involved uh, is that the Jews were mandated to worship and they were mandated to worship um, on the Sabbath. Um, where were they to worship? First of all, where were they to worship in Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed? Mm-hmm. In synagogues. Right. And they were um, more like local congregations, essentially. Right. right. And if you lived up in, in uh, northern Galilee somewhere, you couldn't just pop down on the, on the Sabbath to Jerusalem to worship. So the development of the synagogue is, is something that develops... I think because of express biblical warrant that one should worship on the Sabbath. But what took, you know, what took place in the synagogue? Well, look at the liturgy of the synagogue. Look at the liturgy of the synagogue in intertestamental Judaism. And what do you find? They read scripture. They expounded scripture. Uh, there's a debate as to, as to whether they sang the Psalms of David uh, some did and perhaps some didn't, depending perhaps on musical gifts or something like that. Uh, certain traditions developed um, uh, in one way and, and, and certain traditions developed in another way. But there's absolutely nothing in synagogue worship that violates the regulative principle of reading scripture and singing scripture and praying scripture and, and preaching scripture uh, and, observing, uh, and observing the signs and seals of the covenant. Right. To take a step back, maybe, there are those who are listening to our program who are probably new to the Reformed faith or who aren't in Reformed circles. Where, where would you take someone who is new to the regulative principle of worship to show them biblically where this principle finds its foundation? Well, I think you have to start uh, in the Pentateuch, and I think in the book of Exodus, and again, I think in um, Leviticus, and perhaps especially Deuteronomy, that once the people of God are brought out of Egypt, they are brought out to enter the promised land, but the, but the goal is always that they might worship me. What is the book of Exodus 
principally about, well, what's the second half of the book of Exodus about? Well, it's a, it's a twofold rep- repetition of the building of the tabernacle. And in the description of the building of the tabernacle, you, you'll find almost like a, a stuck record. Well, I suppose that metaphor doesn't mean anything much today. <laughs> but, well, you know, when, when the needle got stuck in a groove, in a, you know, went around a click, click, and, and there's this repetition uh, that, that they were to build uh, the tabernacle precisely in accord with the way God had laid down. They weren't allowed to add or subtract. They were to do it precisely in accord with the way God had laid down. I think that's the beginning of the regulative principle. You worship according to how God um, tells us to worship. Now, I don't see what the huge fuss and caboodle is about that. Um, especially if we're reformed, you know, all, all we're saying, we're not saying, this isn't rocket science, all we're saying is, <laughs> it, it, how does God want to be worshipped in the way that he has told us he wants to be worshipped? And if, if we say that the Bible is the rule of faith and life, and we say that every thought must be taken captive and, right. and all of our actions are to be governed by Scripture, why wouldn't the most important thing we do be governed by Scripture? Why would God leave that up to us? Like John Piper's illustration, I know it's been used a thousand times now about his wife, if, he, uh, if it was her birthday and he went to take her out and he took her out and just did whatever he wanted to do. He said, well, I'm doing it because I love you so much, rather than knowing right. what she loves. and, and When you... When you come into the New Testament, you, know, you, you come to 1 Corinthians and you come to f- chapters 12 and 14, sure, there are, there are aspects there of the worship that, were, that was peculiar, I think, to the apostolic age, namely, namely uh, prophecy and, and, uh, and tongues. But you know, what does Paul say if you're in a worship service? He's, he's not talking about what happens on a Wednesday night um, you know, back at uh, the house of... Uh, of uh, um, Abraham and, and Sarah. Uh, he, he's, he's talking about gathered worship in the congregation in Corinth. Right. Uh, and if, if you feel the urge, you know, speak in tongues, uh, you just feel it sort of rising up within you and, and it's, it's, it's just got to come out. If there is no interpreter present, you just got to shut up. Yes. yes. You've got to bottle Paul's it up. Paul's pretty clear about that. You don't. I don't want to hear a peep out here. That's right. I don't care if you think the spirit is, is causing you to just shut up. That's right. And that's that's biblical a biblical restriction. If right. No and way. and he says the same about prophecy. You know, he says three at most and no more. <laughs> right. And if you're number four in line, like the general assembly, you're waiting in the microphone. You're the fourth speaker. Forget it. You can come back next week because yes. it ain't going to happen in this worship service. Yeah. Well, what is that? That's that's. A regulative principle. It's applying the, a regulation to Scripture. And that's also, interestingly, and I find it interesting at least, the chapter in which order in worship, why we, we order our worship services, um, you know, why Presbyterians especially are so bent on liturgical order, n- neatness that things are done properly because Paul, because they were speaking out of turn, cutting each other off, there was chaos. Um, and so even that regulates our worship, that there's a decency and an order to it. Right. Well, Calvin, you know, and then the, and then the Westminster divines um, felt that 
Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 23, as I recall, um, makes an important uh, statement that what is the opposite of the regulative principle? If, if worship isn't governed by principles of scripture, it is governed by human wisdom. will worship right. or, or man-made rules because there is no alternative. You either have God's rules right. or man's rules. Right. Now, there may be good man's rules. There may be wise man's rules. There might even be insightful man's rules. There may be man's rules of John Piper or Tim Keller or Lincoln Duncan or Nick Badzik. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it's a choice. Is it, is it worship according to the way God has laid down, or is it worship according to whoever my reform guru happens okay. to be at the minute, and it may be Nick. Right, I don't that's okay. want anyone to worship anything according well, to Nick Batsy. Th- that, that passage was hugely important for Calvin and the Westminster Divines, especially Paul's use of ethelothroskia uh, in, in, in Greek, uh, which the King James Version renders will worship. Mm. Uh, which I think is getting right at the heart of it, because essentially, if you don't worship according to the way God dictates, you've got idolatry. Right, right. Man, I, I agree, and that's that's why this is so important. Now, another difficulty that um, for many people, and many in the young, restless, reformed camp, the new Calvinist, uh, many of them are some of my closest friends and have been for for seven to ten years now, and. Uh, the, the issue of good and necessary consequence, which does um, obviously baptism to some degree would be uh, categorized under that. Uh, the Westminster uh, Confession clearly teaches that that is a principle. Not everything is necessary explicitly or, or, or prescriptively. Uh, binding and authoritative, but sometimes descriptively giving. For instance, First Corinthians sixteen one, lay up on the first day of the week. It is binding for the people of God to be giving. I believe in worship services the first day of the week. Even the day change, the first day of the week is good and necessary consequence. Obviously, John does call uh, the Lord's day the Lord's day in Revelation. Revelation. Um, what thoughts do you have on that for us? Helpful thoughts for maybe some guys that are wrestling with the issue, and even for those of us that are um, co- committed to that, that where do you draw the bounds between um, a biblical deduction and an unbiblical deduction? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think this is the area where, you know, we need obviously to exercise a measure of um, Christian um, love and, and understanding um, I see marvelous examples of it at the Westminster um, Assembly. Uh, certain certain practices uh, that the Presbyterians in Scotland were engaging in, certain practices that the Puritans in England were engaging in, they were they they weren't practices uh, that you could say, yeah, this is this is Galatians four six and that's Ephesians three eight. No, these were. These were wise deductions drawn from the principles of Scripture, according to um, according to common sense, uh, according to Christian prudence. Um, now, even those must conform to the general principles of Scripture. I mean, they can't be just wise because you say they're wise. Right. I mean, there has to be some 
some line of argumentation that says, yeah, I'm drawing this from Scripture. This is a principle that I'm drawing from Scripture. But, you know, I, I, uh, I believe um, in two uh, services on the Lord's Day. Um, I argue that because I believe that the Lord's Day should be set apart and it should be holy. Uh, it should be a day that's used uh, especially for uh, gathered public worship. Um, I, 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 you know, my inference would be there's no there's no biblical mandate that says you you have to have an eleven o'clock service and a six o'clock service. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly difficult to keep the Lord's Day if you only have a morning service. I agree, uh, and I think I could prove that in in ten seconds that the that the trajectory of churches that don't have an evening service is that once 12 o'clock comes uh, and they head for the, the lines in Denny's or, or whatever right, right. Uh, and it's, it's downhill from there on. Right. It's, it's back to the treadmill of uh, children's sports yeah. uh, and it's, uh, it's slavery and bondage. Yes, it is. Um, so for, for me, you know, I thank God that for all of my Christian life, I've been in an environment where there's been an evening service, and I don't have to. I I never have to ask myself, how can I keep the Lord's Day? Because as soon as I'm finished lunch and I've had a little nap, hey, it's 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 almost ready to get ready for evening church. Yeah, and I you know I remember as a young Christian just longing to go to evening worship because I was hungry spiritually, and I didn't understand how people couldn't or wouldn't want to go to evening worship. And I remember especially one one Lord's Day night coming home and reading the end of John's Gospel after having been in public worship about Jesus revealing himself to the disciples and just receiving such an amazing blessing of spiritual presence and communion with Christ. And I attribute that not because I came home necessarily and read my Bible, but because um, I had worshiped the Lord throughout the day and um, God had really blessed that in my life, and I don't understand why Christians wouldn't want that. You know, I, I minister now uh, at First Prayers in Jackson as uh, minister of teaching, and, and my main responsibility is to preach on Sunday nights. And uh, I love that. Mm. I, I, I far prefer uh, to preach at uh, First Prayers on Sunday night than I do on Sunday morning. Mm. Totally different crowd. The ones that are there at night want to be there. Mm. They come because they want to be there. They come because they want to hear preaching. Mm. Uh, I, I always feel much greater liberty preaching in the evening than I do in the morning. So as a preacher, uh, you know, I, I love the Sunday evening service. Mm. Uh, I always have to. Let me ask, uh, just piggybacking on the question of uh, good necessary consequence and moving into the... Uh, area of music and um, singing, praise, singing, praising God. Um, obviously, most of our listeners are going to know that our Covenanter brethren and um, some of the uh, Free Church, continuing Free Church of Scotland brethren, um, exclusive psalmody, um, some of whom would argue that we are idolaters. I don't necessarily want to get too too deep into this, but um, because we are adding human compositions. Um, how would you address the issue if you had a young 
new convert coming to you, getting an interest in the regulative principle, and you knew there were some some arguments coming his way for exclusive solemnity, what would you? How would you counsel him, biblically? Oh, carefully. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I have, my, I have family members. My my daughter's a member of the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, exclusive unaccompanied psalms. Uh, so let me say. Up front, I am an inclusive psalm singer. I am too. I believe that we should sing the psalms. I mean, I think we should sing all 150 psalms, including the imprecatory psalms. Mm-hmm. I think... But not to happy tunes. Not to happy tunes. They should be appropriate tunes to the psalms. So there are happy psalms, and there are really very, very sad psalms that should have sad mm. tunes that make you cry. Mm. Uh, and I think, as Calvin says in his commentary... Uh, on the Psalms, that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Mm -hmm. Uh, And part of the reason why we are so uh, paranoid in our day about uh, all kinds of issues, uh, and we run to all kinds of uh, counselors for this, that, and the other, is because we are ministered to uh, in worship in the way that we should. Because we only sing happy clappy songs, but when I leave church, I'm not happy clappy. I go back to the mess and, and ugliness of the world, and I'm sad. But there's nothing in my, in my worship that's, that's ministered to that. I've not sung the plaintive, uh, heartbreaking psalms of David. So therefore, when I go back home to my sadness, I begin to think, you know, maybe I'm not a Christian. You know, maybe I'm not mature. So I need counseling. So I, I think that the reintroduction of, of singing all 150 psalms would cure us of 75, 80% of our spiritual mm. ills. Mm. Very well said. Yeah. Um, but secondly, and I, I, you know, I, I have no interest, zero interest in proselytizing my exclusive psalm singing brothers and sisters. God bless them. I love them to death. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and give me that than some of the nonsense that I've, yes, I've seen absolutely, elsewhere. definitely. But, but I find it a, an odd hermeneutic to say, I can pray to Jesus. I can read publicly Jesus. I can preach Jesus, but I can't sing Jesus. I can sing about him. Right. Yeah. Um, but I can never sing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. I can't say the, the name Jesus when I'm singing. And that, to me, is really odd. Mm-hmm. I, I have segued from Old Covenant into New Covenant. Mm-hmm. I, I, assume, I, I assume right that even, even my, my exclusive psalm singing brothers think that when they get to heaven, they will sing with the song the, of the Lamb. Right. Uh, so why in the age, in the last days, when the eschaton has broken into the now, so that we are those upon whom the end of the ages has dawned, we don't already begin to sing the new song? That's right. Um, I, I don't get that hermeneutic. It's a, I just think that's, a, that's a, an odd hermeneutic. You know, two very different guys, um, Lee Irons and Joey Piper, probably the only time they've ever been mentioned together, I don't know. Um, Both make the argument from Colossians and Ephesians that in the context of Paul um, saying that that Christians should teach one another and sing to one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, right after that, I believe it's in Ephesians, uh, could be 
incorrect, it could be Colossians, that Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is to receive mediatorial glory for his work of redemption on the cross. And if we do not sing to him explicitly in theologically sound ways, do not sing about him, we are robbing him of mediatorial glory. Right. I, but I just think hermeneutically, you know, we, we, we bring our, our reading of Scripture into the New Covenant. We bring our preaching into the New Covenant. But we don't bring our singing into the New Covenant. And that, to me, just is a really weird hermeneutic to me. Um, that... There also seems to be evidence, and maybe you could speak to this, that more than just psalms were sung in the Old Testament. I remember reading through Habakkuk not long ago, and the end of Habakkuk says, to the chief choir master now. That doesn't necessarily prove that it was um, sung in Old Covenant worship. There's also some evidence that the Song of Solomon, um, the Song of Songs was sung, um, may not be as widespread, but there is some evidence that it was sung in temple worship. Any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I'll stay away from the Song of Solomon for a minute. But, um, you know, I also think that in the New Testament uh, that there is a great deal of evidence to suggest that Philippians 2 was an early Christian hymn, that Colossians chapter 1 was probably an early Christian hymn, um, that the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis uh, and uh, so on became um, part of New Testament um, uh, worship language um, from the very beginning and, and perhaps in the case of Philippians 2 predating the Carmen Christi of, of Philippian, Philippians 2 the, in the Song of Christ predates Philippians itself Paul is utilizing something that was already in use in the church so there's already this this uh, this tradition uh, in the church uh, of singing the name of Jesus now, the, um, the other difficult issue with, with um, uh, praise and, and singing in worship, corporate, in corporate worship, is the, the instrumental aspect, and this moves us into the circumstances. Um, my understanding is that while instruments are not mentioned explicitly in the New Testament except in Revelation, correct me if I'm wrong on that, um, I'm on the one hand applying the already not yet that you just spoke about that you do have instruments in heavenly worship maybe that's symbolic, maybe not they're mentioned um, that they would be circumstantial they are meant for accompaniment um, I know there, there's going to be disagreement on this uh, I'm not necessarily in support of solos in worship uh, instrumental pieces I know that again there's going to be a, a wide array of difference on this but would you say that's fairly accurate, that instruments would be a circumstance for accompaniment to accompany the people of God to sing the praises of God, and not necessarily what they were? You know, Calvin actually, I believe, uh, taught in maybe Psalm 148 that they were passed away because they were ceremonial. I know I've heard that he changed at some point. Yeah, I mean, Calvin, uh, you know, Calvin argues in Psalm 150 um, that... Uh, the, the references to um, uh, dance, for example, you know, are musical instruments. So Calvin's interpretation of the of the Hebrew, first of all, needs to be needs to be looked at. I find it an odd hermeneutic, and I've had I've had these discussions with exclusive unaccompanied psalm singers in my own uh, family now. Um, 
that um, Old Testament use of instruments, which cannot be denied in the temple, um, was part of the ceremonial law. What does that mean? That, that in some way the musical instruments pointed to Jesus and, and therefore that that was fulfilled at the coming of Jesus? I just found that a really weird hermeneutic. Hmm. Rather than you know, the obvious, that the, reasons why, the reason why instruments were employed in worship was to accompany worship, which was to provide uh, the base for leading a tune uh, to, the, to the glory uh, of God. Um, I think the Reformation period, you know, goes through some hiccups on that. Uh, you know, Zwingli's uh, overreaction because of his immense musical gifts, maybe, and I can, I can, I can sympathise with that. I've I've been at a Lord's Supper, for example, uh, in our own church, where uh, the organist was playing um, uh, a, a, a certain piece of uh, music um, that, for me, was just. Um, completely overwhelming. I know the piece well. It's a piece of classical music. Uh, it, it, it builds up to this great crescendo. And I said to her one day, you know, when I hear that piece of music, I, I can't think about anything else. I, it just completely overwhelms me. It, it, it emotionally takes over. And I, I'm not thinking about Jesus anymore. I'm, I'm just thinking about how beautifully she plays this piece of music. Um, and, you know, Bless her, cotton socks. She's never played it since. All because I I said this to her. I mean, that's that's that was, Emma, that was a beautiful thing. Um, you know, I I think I think I think there's a balance in worship. I think that instruments. Um, you know, I I don't get all hot and heavy about organs, pianos, guitars, drums. I mean, all that sort of stuff. I th I think all of that needs to be worked out musically. Yes, I agree. It's not a. It's not a. Is this reformed? Is this is this contemporary? It's what works and what's appropriate. Right. Is it is it musical? Right. It comes back to the wisdom. You know, does does a does a guitar in a congregation of fifteen hundred work musically? And the answer is no, it does not. With the big amp, it may. <laughs> well, maybe. And a lot of lights. Um, so a, a lot of that dis discussion for me is not a discussion about is this reformed, is this regulative principle. Is it, it's more of a wisdom thing. Um, does it work musically? And and sometimes the answer to that is actually it doesn't work musically. Mm -hmm. The same with tunes. You know, is it more reformed to sing a tune that was written in? The 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, or one that was written, uh, you know, by somebody in the PCA in the 1980s. Um, well, sometimes you hear a tune and you think, yeah, that tune is great to sing around a campfire. It's great to sing with 20 people in a room somewhere with a guitar. Beautiful, works fantastic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work mm -hmm. uh, as a tune for 1,500 people to sing. Right in unison um, in a worship service. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that's my, that's, that's my argument sometimes with contemporary music. I'm not opposed to contemporary music. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination. But that music, first of all, has to suit and be a vehicle for the words, but it also has to function musically in the context in which it is being sung. Yeah, while we're on contemporary music, um, what are your thoughts on 
um, some churches that use projections and they project the words up on a screen opposed to a hymnal and maybe even broader you bring PowerPoint into the sermon what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I have to be I have to be discreet um, I, I'm not opposed I'm not opposed to a, a, a projector or a screen um, in, as a point of principle you know I'm sure there are there are church planting contexts where purchasing hymn books um, you know, might, might be difficult. I'm prepared to say that context exists and it's a lot cheaper to do a, a, an overhead projector. That's, that, that doesn't really bother me. I, I like to have something in my hands, but that's, that's, that's my tradition. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware that when I say that, that's my prejudice. I am more opposed to putting the Bible up on a screen because I really do want to emphasize what I think is a Reformation principle. I want the Bible in people's hands. I want people to bring their own Bibles with them. Not because it says so in Exodus 14.1 or something like that, but, but, I, but I do think it's a matter of principle. Um, it's a Reformational principle, it seems to me, um, that, uh, that folk were martyred for for the right mm-hmm. uh, that we that we can interpret the Bible without uh, the intermediary of a priest. Mm-hmm. We can have a Bible, right? And and the whole notion of the perspicuity of Scripture to me means, yeah, I want a Bible in my own hands. People died for this Bible, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to encourage people um, to bring their own Bibles and to get familiar with it, right. so that it's not just something they do uh, on Sunday morning, looking up at a screen, but it's it, you know it's six times removed. From my, from my daily experience, I want them to go home and actually turn to that passage that they've been studying that morning. So that's why I would emphasize having a Bible and a pew Bible, perhaps. And, and when you preach, it's, it's helpful for people to have a church Bible or their own Bible to, to look in the context if you're pointing things out. I at least find that to be a good thing, and if you're just putting scripture up at the very beginning of your sermon. Well, you know, for me as a preacher, you know, the sweetest sound is the rustling of those Bible leaves. I mean, I think that's great. Amen. Uh, that people are, are actually turning to this passage. You know, I, I don't want sermons to be, you know, hunt and peck. Mm-hmm. This text, that text, you know, and then 1,800 texts later. Those kind of sermons drive me nuts. But, but every now and then I, I, I love to say, turn to this passage. And I love to hear those rustling leaves. It's a, it's a holy sound. Um, before we end the interview, and it's been really wonderful, can you give us, give our listeners, uh, maybe a list of books, articles, just some references that you think, um, you, what, that you have found to be really helpful in regard to um, the, even the sufficiency of scripture in matters like these, regulative principle of worship? Um. Well, let me make a couple of plugs here. Uh, uh, f- first of all, Terry Johnson. Uh, you know, Terry, Terry is the expert uh, on the rights of principle. And he has written several books, but he's written a very a, a small booklet, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 pages on um, reformed worship. And, uh, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I would certainly recommend that. Um, if you want to, if you want to um, take that a little further, I, I think that the directory for the public worship of God is one of the most neglected documents mm-hmm. uh, 
um, in our reformed community. And I don't know what the reason for that is. I, I think it was written at a time to try and bring some sense of unity into worship wars in the 17th century. I mean, I don't think you know, we're the only people who had worship wars. They had worship wars in the 17th century. And I think, I think the purpose and function of that directory was to try and bring what is principle and what is, it and what is secondary. Right. What are things that we can disagree over? Like the, like the Presbyterians wanted to come and stand at the table. The English Puritans didn't do that. So they, they compromised in that, in that directory, which is, which is what they should have done. Yes. Um, uh, a, a, new, a brand new book on the directory, written by Mark Dever and Sinclair Ferguson, has right. just been published. There were two essays that they, uh, two addresses They're that great they great essays. And I forget what it's called, but it's published by Christian Focus. It's just published recently mm-hmm. on the directory of, uh, for the public worship of uh, God. So those, those would be two sources. The Westminster Confession, mm-hmm. chapter 1, chapter 20, chapter 21. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what well, this has been really a great interview. Thank you so much for your time. We want to um, remind our listeners to visit the various websites, feedingonchrist.com, uh, reformforum.org. And uh, we thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again to Christ the Center. <laughs>